0: All right, welcome, welcome everybody to another episode of The Final Final Podcast here. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it as always. Packed episode today as we are in the midst of the NBA Conference Finals. We got the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Atlanta Hawks in the Eastern Conference and the Phoenix Suns versus the Los Angeles Clippers in the Western Conference. We'll discuss how these teams got to where they are and what each team's and what each team's chances are of making it to the NBA Finals with the matchup that they have ahead of them. We'll also, today, quickly dive into the Julio Jones trade that happened about maybe 10 days, two weeks ago now, actually a little under two weeks ago now. Does this make his new team, the Tennessee Titans, a legit threat in the AFC with the likes of the Kansas City Chiefs, the Baltimore Ravens, the Cleveland Browns, the Buffalo Bills? Are they up there with those teams in the AFC? We'll see what kind of impact Julio Jones can make. For the Tennessee Titans, his new team that he was traded to. We've got some NCAA football and basketball to discuss as well today on the podcast as we're looking at possibly having a 12-team playoff for college football in just a couple of years. We'll talk it through whether a 12-team playoff makes sense or if that's maybe too big of a jump from the four-team playoff that we have right now. So settle in, relax as we go ahead and get started here with the NBA conference finals, and we'll start in the Western Conference where we just had an incredible game two out in Phoenix where the Suns come away with a 104-103 to 103 victory off of an inbounds dunk with less than a second remaining, giving the Suns a 2-0 series lead. DeAndre Ayton with the dunk, Jay Crowder with the absolutely insane pass, just incredible stuff. This is stuff you always dream of this play actually working, but rarely see it put into action and working as well as it did last night for the Suns. I mean, this is one of those, There's, if you watched this play, if you haven't, go make sure you go see the highlight of this game-winning dunk by Jay Crowder and DeAndre Ayton. But it's one of those plays where you have to know the rules, and clearly the Suns did. There's no goaltending on a play like this. Basically what it was is Jay Crowder, the inbounds passer, throwing it directly at the hoop, almost looking like he's trying to make the shot from out of bounds. And then all DeAndre Ayton has to do is just touch it with his hands just above the rim and put it in. I think we've seen this maybe only a few other times. I think I can remember Tyson Chandler back when he was with the Dallas Mavericks, I believe they had a play like this work out for them as well. But the Suns pulling it off to perfection, I believe there was 0.9 seconds remaining on the clock when they they were down by one to the Los Angeles Clippers. They pull this play off and they come away with the victory. They lead the Clippers 2-0. So, I mean, the Phoenix Suns have won nine straight playoff games after going down, I believe, 2-1 to the Lakers. They've rattled off nine straight, sweeping the Denver Nuggets in the second round. Now here they are up 2-0 on the Los Angeles Clippers. And this is also, they've been doing this with missing Chris Paul due to the health and safety protocols. He was missing these first two games we believe he tested positive for COVID-19. He has since cleared those protocols. He, I believe the news was that he received his vaccine um, and he has since cleared protocols. I don't know if this is just what we've heard is he's, he's he either tested positive or he was in close contact. And we're not sure if he actually has had the vaccine or whatnot, but either way, he has cleared those protocols. He looks like he'll be ready to play for game three. And so now it's Devin Booker, Chris Paul, and DeAndre Ayton, Where on the other side, the Los Angeles Clippers are still without their star player in Kawhi Leonard. So now the Clippers were able to survive the top-seeded Jazz in the first round, winning that series in six games. Kawhi Leonard went out after game four. Paul George stepped up big time in games five and six. The Clippers went on to win those games. Here they are now in their first-ever conference finals, now down 2-0 to the Phoenix Suns without Kawhi Leonard. We're not sure what his status is for Game 3 or Game 4. He did not travel to Phoenix to hopefully rehab. The problem with his injury is, with Kawhi Leonard's injury is, we don't necessarily know what it is exactly. What we've heard is it's, right now they're calling it an ACL strain. We initially thought it was possibly an ACL tear. Right now we don't know if it is an ACL tear, but he hasn't played in Games 1 and 2, and he didn't play in Games 5 and 6 of the conference semifinals against the Utah Jazz. So, I mean, I, I don't know how the Clippers, without <laughs> Kawhi Leonard, can get past Devin Booker and the Suns to make their first-ever NBA finals. Like I just mentioned, they're playing in their first-ever conference finals as an organization. The Los Angeles Clippers, obviously a newer organization, but still making it to their first conference finals in franchise history is a huge deal. But now, I mean, they, this was probably their best chance to steal a game, at least on the road, against Phoenix. And they and they couldn't pull it out, especially with that uh, miraculous play by Jay Crowder and, and DeAndre Ayton. But, I mean, the Clippers have still been performing well without Kawhi Leonard. Something has been clicking with, with Ty Lu and, and Paul George taking the lead, and he's even performing well in the fourth quarter. I mean, before last night, I mean, you, you, a lot of people... And rightfully so, we'll hold this against Paul George, but he missed those two free throws late in the game that could have put them up by three. Instead, they only stayed up by one. And then that led to what we are now calling, um, I believe it's called the valley oop for the Phoenix Suns, Um, with that alley oop from DeAndre Ayton to Jay Crowder. But before those two missed free throws with under 30 seconds remaining from Paul George, he had, I believe... 10 points in the fourth quarter. He was assisting or scoring on the last few points for the Clippers down the stretch. He was getting past defenders driving to the lane. He he put them up two. He put them up one, excuse me, had the chance to put them up three with the free throws, misses those and that's all anybody remembers. But somehow the Clippers have been still very competitive winning games ex- against the Jazz at least without Kawhi Leonard. But I think if they want to get back into the series. And we've seen them get back into series when they've been down 2-0. We saw them come back against the Dallas Mavericks in round one. They were down 2-0, came back and won that in seven games. They were actually down 2-0 to the Utah Jazz as well, rattled off four straight wins against the, the top-seeded Jazz and moved on to the conference finals. So we've seen them down 2-0 this season, this exact team, this year, and come back and win the series down 2-0. But that was with Kawhi Leonard for most of the time. Sure, they didn't have him for games 5 and 6 against the Utah Jazz, but they had him for games 3 and 4, where it was important that they didn't go down 3-0 or they didn't go down 3-1. He was there to tie up the series 2-2 against the Utah Jazz. He was there for the entire Dallas Mavericks series, of course. I don't know if the Los Angeles Clippers can survive down 2-0 now to the Phoenix Suns, who get back possibly their second best player a top maybe almost a top five-point guard of all time in Chris Paul. I don't know if they'll be able to survive that down 2-0 to these Phoenix Suns who, like I mentioned, have won nine straight playoff games after going up 2-0 on the Los Angeles Clippers here. They need Kawhi Leonard back. I mean, uh, Devin Booker had a 40-point triple-double in Game 1. I think he had around maybe 18 points in Game 2 but this team just has so or maybe maybe over 20 points but this team just has so many other weapons it's not where it's it's not like it's the Dallas Mavericks where it's Luka Doncic and then maybe Tim Hardaway Jr. can get 20 points with the Phoenix Suns it's Devin Booker can go get 40 Deandre Ayton their first round center from maybe 2 3 years ago the number 1 overall pick center from 2 3 years ago he's averaging 20 and 10 in these playoffs that's what he's giving you every night and like i said Booker can get 40 now you add back Chris Paul, who looks to be getting healthier with that shoulder we saw in round one. That doesn't seem to be bothering him as much. He can score 25, 30, 35 points easily. Now you've got this guy Cameron Payne, who just came out in game two against the Los Angeles Clippers and scored 29 points. And then you've got contributors all over the floor with Mikkel Bridges for the Phoenix Suns. Jay Crowder, who we've mentioned. You've got Dario Saric, who's putting up good minutes for the Phoenix Suns as well. The Suns team isn't reliant on one superstar to carry them, but they have the superstars to carry them if they need it. If Does that make sense? So it's not like Luka Doncic, if he has a poor game, you would obviously think the Mavericks are going to lose. Where the Phoenix Suns, Devin Booker, if he has a poor game, another guy will and has been stepping up this entire postseason. But if you need Devin Booker to go get 40, he can easily go get 40. He's gotten 40 a couple times this postseason. That's what makes this Phoenix Suns team really difficult for the Los Angeles Clippers. Now, I mean, because I mean, you can put Kawhi Leonard, say he's healthy, you can put Kawhi Leonard on Devin Booker and try and slow him down. He'll still be able to get 20 points with Kawhi Leonard possibly guarding him. But then you've got Chris Paul to worry about. You got DeAndre Ayton working in the low post, (laughs) performing really well. You got Cameron Payne coming off the bench, uh, exceeding expectations for the Phoenix Suns. So even with Kawhi Leonard, this would be a tall task. But without Kawhi Leonard on this team for the Los Angeles Clippers, I don't know if they'll be able to pull it off. I think they'll still be able to win two games. I mean, you've got one of the best coaching matchups in the NBA in this series. you got Monty Williams for the Phoenix Suns. I believe he was coach of the year this year, getting the number two seed with the Phoenix Suns. He has been a fantastic coach, getting the right guys on his team, putting them in the right situations to compete and to win basketball games this year, which they've done. And then you got Ty Lue on the other side for the Los Angeles Clippers, and he has just been fantastic this entire postseason. This is the kind of coach you saw it when he won his first NBA championship with LeBron James in Cleveland. The adjustments that he makes, bringing in DeMarcus Cousins this series, not bringing him in the next series, sitting Patrick Beverly against the Utah Jazz, bringing him in against the Dallas Mavericks, I mean, just the, the little moves that he makes that have been working for this team. He's pushing the right buttons to keep them in the series. Even right now with them down 2-0, even though I have skepticism, you don't count out the Los Angeles Clippers because you don't know what Ty Lu is going to bring in the next game. He's so great at changing it up and making the teams or and keeping the other team off of their <laughs> are on their toes is what I'm trying to say because they don't know the adjustments that he's going to make, and you know he's going to make adjustments to keep his team in it to try and win and, and bring them back in this series. I think they would need Kawhi Leonard to come back from this series down 2-0, and we'll see what his status is for Game 3, which is, I believe Game 3 is tomorrow on Thursday as I record this on Wednesday here. But, I mean, right now that's that's where we stand with, with these two. You had the Suns and the Clippers. The Suns swept the Nuggets. The Clippers got past the top seeded Jazz. And here we have the Suns with a 2-0 lead on the Los Angeles Clippers. Crazy game, too. This is a really great series. I love, I'm a big fan of this Phoenix Suns team. Devin Booker has been showing out in his first uh, postseason appearance. And this is what we were waiting for. We knew this guy was talented. We saw him in the regular season. What what was it, two years ago, three years ago, when he was 22 or 23 years old? He's put up 70 points in a game. We're just, this is one of those guys that were like, we got to get him in the playoffs and we'll see how special he is, and and we're, we're seeing it right now, how special Devin Booker is in these playoffs. All right, on the other side then, we have the Eastern Conference Finals, we have the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Atlanta Hawks, probably two teams a lot of people didn't expect to see here, the Milwaukee Bucks coming off of a thrilling Game 7 victory over the Brooklyn Nets and Kevin Durant, and then the Hawks with a huge upsetting game seven win on the road in Philadelphia over the 76ers. I mean, incredible job by Trey Young, Nate McMillan, Kevin Huger and the Atlanta Hawks. I mean, just insane what they were able to do. I mean, they've got now they've got the, the 76ers in shambles with with what they should do with their roster and we'll talk about that in just a second. So, but we got the Milwaukee Bucks versus the Atlanta Hawks starting actually probably in about an hour or so as I record this. I mean, as soon as this gets posted, the game will probably be on, but we'll talk about the series as a whole here. But first, the question for, for the Milwaukee Bucks is, did you just get past your biggest obstacle of winning your first NBA title since, I think, 1971, the Brooklyn Nets? I mean, the, this was this was my thought, if you remember my last episode. I thought the winner of the Milwaukee Bucks-Brooklyn Nets series was going to end up as the eventual NBA champion. I thought those were the two top teams. Now, the Brooklyn Nets were hit by a ton of injuries. Kyrie Irving went down, I believe, in Game 4 after the Bucks won Game 3. Goes down in Game 4. Bucks win Game 4. The series is tied up at 2 apiece. Game 5 rolls around. James Harden comes back early. Struggles in that one, but the Nets still able to pull off a Game 5 victory. Bucks come back home for Game 6, route the Nets in that one, go to Game 7, and the rest is history from there. I mean, this one goes to overtime. Kevin Durant puts up 48 points. He's literally a toenail away from winning it in regulation, but he steps on the line, it goes to overtime, and there's like a total of 4 points scored in overtime. Giannis has a 40-point game in Game 7. To me, the Bucks now can't get too confident. I thought this would be their biggest obstacle to winning an NBA title. They are a huge mismatch for the Atlanta Hawks, which we'll get to in just a second. But this was a huge series against the next against the Nets, excuse me, for the Bucks beyond just this season. This is for Giannis, for Chris Middleton, for Mike Budenholzer. This saved Mike Budenholzer's job for now. Now, if he doesn't get to the NBA Finals, he could still lose his job after this, but if he would have lost that game 7 against the Brooklyn Nets, he was for surely going to get fired after two straight seasons of not making it to at least the conference finals. So that's that's just how big of the series this was for the Milwaukee Bucks just beyond this season. Now for this season, they can't have a letdown in this Eastern Conference Finals against the Atlanta Hawks to make the NBA Finals. They have possibly the two or three best players in this series, with Giannis being the best player, Chris Middleton maybe as the second best player, and then Drew Holiday. And the reason I say Drew Holiday could be the third best player in this series over Trey Young is we've seen this matchup of Trey Young versus Drew Holiday, and Drew Holiday has dominated this matchup of the point guard position. He has held Trey Young to incredibly low shooting percentages. I mean, I believe one for 10 in a game. He holds him to around 25% shooting when it comes to the two. I mean, Drew Holiday, we've already seen the awards handed out. He's a first team all defensive player, top point guard in terms of defense in the nba we saw him guarding kevin durant to end the season in game seven last series so the bucks can't take their foot off the gas when it comes to the atlanta hawks because we've seen the hawks upset teams already this postseason the philadelphia 76ers for example and we'll talk about their imminent demise after what their this series loss means for them but you got to give credit to the atlanta hawks in what they've done i mean nate mcmillan Their head coach comes in midseason after they fire, I believe it's Lloyd Pierce. They fire Lloyd Pierce. Nate McMillan comes in as the interim coach, leads them to a 35 and like 15 record, and here they are in the Eastern Conference Finals. So, I mean, they have just done an incredible job all season. Trey Young with uh, putting the league on notice in terms of here's my first playoff appearance as well. Uh, Here's my first Eastern Conference Finals appearance. Uh, Take me seriously, and he's backing up all the trash talking that he's been doing. So the Bucs, they have the size and they have the shooting to easy, not easily dispatch the Atlanta Hawks, but they are heavy favorites for a reason in this series. If Trey Young isn't effective, which we've seen against Drew Holiday, him be ineffective many times, the Atlanta Hawks will struggle most likely to score on the offensive end. He can still dish. I mean, he's got Bogdan Bogdanovich. Ooh, that's another fun little like side story plot right there. He was supposed to be a Milwaukee Buck this season. If you remember all the way back before this season started, the Bucks were about to sign him, but then there was some sort of tampering issue that the league, uh, some bullshit like that. But, anyways, we're, we're, we're past that now. But there's a fun little side plot. Bogdan Bogdanovich has been averaging close to 20 points per game for the Hawks as well. But the, the Bucks also have the size on the inside with Brooke Lopez matching up with Clint Capella, Giannis matching up with John Collins. You'll, you'll see Chris Middleton as well with Bogdanovich. And then you've got P.J. Tucker, who's a lockdown defender as well. The Bucks defense is top five in the NBA. We just saw them. They didn't, they didn't stop or slow down Kevin Durant, but they tried to make it tough for him. And if you can make it tough for Kevin Durant, you can make it a lot tougher for most other scorers in the NBA. So the Bucks are heavy favorites for a reason. But they can't let up in any way. And, and they have to try and avoid any uh what's the hangover. That's that's the word. They can't have any hangover in this series from the exhaustion that they had in that second round series against the Brooklyn Nets. You could see the Bucs lose game one. They've had three days off since that grueling series against the Brooklyn Nets. If you watched game seven for the Milwaukee Bucks, you saw how tired a lot of these Bucs players were. It was infuriating. How tired Giannis looked compared to Kevin Durant when he's been playing more minutes. But each player is different. They were exhausted. The, all the Bucks. Chris Middleton was playing fifty. Didn't come out for a single second in that game seven. Giannis played fifty minutes in that game. Fifty of the fifty or uh, fifty-three minutes. He played fifty of those. PJ Tucker's playing a lot of minutes. Drew Holiday's playing forty-eight to fifty minutes a night in those overtime games as well. So the Bucks were exhausted. The thing is, the Atlanta Hawks were two after a Game 7 against the Philadelphia 76ers. Bucks can't have a hangover after that series against the Brooklyn Nets because the Atlanta Hawks could jump on it and take advantage, and then it could put you in a little bit of crisis mode. So the Bucks got to keep their focus. They are the favorites for a reason over the Atlanta Hawks. And, and speaking of the Hawks, what can they do to upset the Milwaukee Bucks in in this series? Trey Young, I mean he's surprised. Can he surprise us one more time against the Bucks? That's that's what he's gonna have to do. He's gonna have to score 30 plus points, shooting efficiently, dish out 10 plus 10 to 15 assists each game. He's gonna have to have help from Bogdan Bogdanovich from John Collins on the inside. Clint Capella is gonna have to scoop up some offensive rebounds as well. This there are some spots where we saw the Bucs get taken advantage of in that Brooklyn Nets series. We'll see it with three days in between that game seven and the start of this series if the Bucks figured out where some of their weak spots were, and if not, if the Atlanta Hawks can take advantage of them. We'll have to see. Game one starts in about like an hour, like I said, but this should be a fun series, and the Bucks, I think, just got past their their biggest obstacle of winning their first championship since 1971. We'll see on the other side here for the losing teams in this Eastern Conference. We got to talk about this for a second. The 76ers and the Nets losing means what for both teams? We'll start with the 76ers. It's it, I think this is a pretty simple ex- what they need to do. It's time to blow up the process. You remember was it way back in 2015-2014 when they first drafted Joel Embiid, they were they had what was it the the worst record in the NBA of all time, did they win 11 games one season? They got Ben Simmons after that year. And, and their whole motto was trust the process. The process is coming along slowly. You got to trust it. Ben Simmons, Joel Embiid, these are our guys. So now they've had those guys. They've been on the same team for a couple of years in a row now. They've got a championship. I'm going to put quotes, <laughs> quotes around championship caliber head coach in Doc Rivers. But this was supposed to be the year that it all came together for the 76ers. They got the number one seed. They've got Joel Embiid playing at an MVP level. I think he finished third in MVP voting this year. Ben Simmons was an all-star. They've got shooting surrounding these two guys in Seth Curry, Danny Green. they got another scorer in Tobias Harris. They've got a great defense behind Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons, Matisse Thibel. They've got all the pieces. They've, they think they've got the coach. They've got the GM and Daryl Morey. And here they go and lose to the Atlanta Hawks, the five seed, in seven games on their home floor. I mean, Ben Simmons became a massive liability for them, especially in the fourth quarter. I think he, he didn't shoot any shots in the fourth quarter of the last at least three or four games of that series. And there's, And I'm sure you've seen this video by now. But he had a wide open dunk late in the fourth quarter of game seven, and he passed it up For fear of being fouled, he shot maybe 35% from the free throw line. It was disheartening to see. It was sad to see. And it had to be just infuriating for 76ers fans to see that from Ben Simmons, your all-star. But this was supposed to be the year. The Nets, were they had their big three, and we'll talk about them in a second. They were injured. Two of the three were. They were basically playing with one and a half stars. This was supposed to be the year for the 76ers, and they blew it in the conference semifinals. They didn't even make it to the Eastern Conference Finals, so that tells me time to blow it up. Ben Simmons has to be traded. You just you work around Joel Embiid, you go get him another all-star outside of Ben Simmons, someone that can score. I don't know, and I don't think Doc Rivers is the coach. We saw it last year with the Los Angeles Clippers, how he blew a 3-1 lead against the Denver Nuggets in the postseason. I mean, people have been talking about the lack of adjusting from Doc Rivers, and people are like, he needs to call Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen, Rajon Rondo right now and thank them for the one championship that he has, because I believe he also has the most Game 7 losses in NBA history for a coach. I mean, it's just not looking good for Doc Rivers in terms of those stats starting to pile up against him. So for me, the 76ers, what this loss and what this series means against the Atlanta Hawks, Time to blow it up. It's something majors got to shake out. I think you can build around Joel Embiid. Hope he stays healthy, which he was most of this year. I mean, he, he missed around, what, maybe 15 to 20 games, but still got the number one seed. Hopefully he doesn't miss that many games, but it's time to blow it up, and Ben Simmons is, I think, the trade piece that this team has to do. For the Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, on the other hand, Going down to Game 7 against the Milwaukee Bucks, a very talented Milwaukee Bucks, a a team that usually can score well. They shoot the three well. They're one of the best defensive teams as well. And they did this with a healthy Durant. They had Kyrie Irving healthy for three games. And then they had a half-healthy James Harden, and they took the Milwaukee Bucks to a Game 7. What this tells me, if they can keep this core three of Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and James Harden together— all healthy next season, playing all year together, developing that chemistry that, that everybody was worried about, I don't see a way that this team can be stopped. I mean, I th- after I watched them, especially against the Celtics and then also against the Bucks here, even without James Harden, they looked almost unstoppable with just two of these superstars. When they get the three of them and they'll they'll rework this roster a little bit, they'll lose a few guys. But even with the three of them, I thought they were going to win the championship this year, and that was with little to no chemistry from the regular season. You give them a full healthy season, this this Nets team is going to be so good. They should be the finals favorites easily. Kevin Durant showing that he is still, I don't know why people ever thought he wasn't, but he's still a top two player in this league. I mean, this is what happens when guys get injured. It's happening with LeBron right now. He's out for a couple of games. People start to question if they're still the best player in the world. Kevin Durant missing all of last season with the Achilles injury. No, he is still a top two, you can argue, best player in the world with him and LeBron James right now. People had him outside the top five. You just saw what Kevin Durant is. This guy can go get 40 any night with, with the best defenders on him. You know, So, I mean, with Kevin Durant healthy, with Kyrie Irving and James Harden, these guys will figure out how to play basketball together, and I think they'll end up being unstoppable next season if they keep those three together. They're all healthy. They'll have a couple of other pieces around them. I don't know if Blake Griffin stays. We'll see what they do at the point guard. I'm sorry, at the small small forward position, at the center position. Who knows? But as long as those three are there, this is going to be probably the best team in the NBA next season. They'll be fine. That being said, Milwaukee Bucks, Atlanta Hawks, Phoenix Suns, Los Angeles Clippers, here's my prediction for the two teams that make the NBA Finals. I think we'll see a Finals of the Phoenix Suns versus the milwaukee bucks and to me that would be a fantastic nba finals you'll have chris paul looking for his first ring at age 35 or 36 you'll have Giannis into what year two of his supermax deal looking to looking to justify signing that five-year max deal with milwaukee winning a championship there then you've got devin booker a star on the rise chris middleton drew holiday DeAndre Ayton, the number one overall pick. That, I think, would be a great finals matchup, the Phoenix Suns versus the Milwaukee Bucks. That's my NBA finals prediction. All right, let's move on to the NFL and the Julio Jones trade that sent him to the Tennessee Titans a little bit under, I think, around 10 days ago now, maybe. Maybe. But here's, here's the nuts and bolts of the trade. Tennessee, they receive Julio Jones, a 2023 sixth-round pick. The Atlanta Falcons, then, they receive a 2022 second-round pick, so next year's draft second-round pick, and a 2023 fourth-round pick. But most importantly for the Atlanta Falcons, they gain cap space. They were way over the cap. They couldn't even sign their rookie class, which includes generational tight end prospect Kyle Pitts. So by losing Julio Jones, they'll end up signing their rookie class, and they'll move on from there, restructuring a few other guys, maybe the quarterback Matt Ryan. They're looking to re-sign their, their franchise defensive tackle, Grady Jarrett, as well. But a franchise icon in Julio Jones, maybe one of the best Falcons players of all time, especially given the just the depth of his career that he's had in Atlanta there gone and traded to the Tennessee Titans. So the big question for the Titans is, does this put them in the same class as, say, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills in the AFC? And to me, they I think they're just a hair below them. And the reason why is you still have to consider Julio Jones's health. This is why other teams... other Now, if, if Julio Jones has a full healthy season with Matt Ryan, A.J. Brown on one side, and Derrick Henry in the backfield and puts up 1,300 receiving yards, yeah, every other NFL team is going to look foolish for not trading a first-round pick or a second, two second-round picks or a second-and-a-third-round pick to get Julio Jones on their team. But the problem with Julio Jones is he's been injured the past few seasons. He's missed games. He's come in and he's come out. It's I wouldn't say he's injury-prone, but It's just just something to consider for a 32-year-old wide receiver who you've seen decline in the past couple of seasons. He still is guaranteed a 1,000 yards receiving, I think, if he's healthy for a full 16 games. If he's healthy for a full 16, 17 games, I think that he could easily get 1,300 receiving yards, especially in how efficient that Tennessee Titans offense is. But what this does is this upgrades the ability for the Tennessee Titans. I mean, last year it was A.J. Brown and Corey Davis, and A.J. Brown had to do a lot of the heavy lifting in the passing game. But now what this does is this opens up the field for not only A.J. Brown on the other side, who is an ascending third-year wide receiver now. He's possibly he's close to a top 10. Top, he's easily a top 15 wide receiver. But what this does then is this also will open up more space somehow for Derrick Henry, which is insane coming off of a 2,000-yard Rushing season. I think this does elevate the Tennessee Titans' offense a little bit, but Julio Jones doesn't solve some of the issues that they have on the defensive side where they might not be able to stop a Kansas City Chiefs and a Buffalo Bills offense. They still have a rough, they need to figure out their pass rush. Some of their secondary players are still not up to par with some of the weapons that they'll be facing in the AFC, but what this does is it puts their offense right there with the Buffalo Bills at least. I don't know if it puts it on par with the Kansas City Chiefs and Patrick Mahomes. He's on a different level than Ryan Tannehill, of course. But it puts the Tennessee Titans offense right up there with at least the Buffalo Bills. The rest of their team will have to see. But I like this move a lot for the Tennessee Titans. They lost Corey Davis to free agency, needed to replace him. Now they've got a 1A and a 1B in Julio Jones and A.J. Brown. I just hope, I just hope, hope, hope that he can stay healthy all season. As for the Atlanta Hawks, I'm sorry, we were just talking about the Atlanta Hawks. As for the Atlanta Falcons, did they get enough for an all-time franchise player like Julio? I think this is what the best offer they were going to get. Like I said, teams weren't willing to give up that first-round pick for a 32-year-old wide receiver who we've seen have injury issues, right? The best thing for them is they get that cap space. They get the 2022 second-round pick. They also get a fourth-round pick the year after that. But what they also do is they move him out of the NFC. He's no longer going to be facing them, most likely, in the regular season, in the seasons coming. So there's not going to be any Julio Jones revenge games. But that's that's a big thing for them. But I think getting a second-round pick was big. A fourth-round pick is nice as well for Sugar on top for it. But, of course, they get that all-important cap space that they were struggling to do with some of their bigger contracts on this team. So now the Falcons, their weapons, it's going to be Calvin Ridley, Kyle Pitts, and Matt Ryan on that offense. I mean, that would have been really cool to see Matt Ryan, Julio Jones, Calvin Ridley, and Kyle Pitts with those. That's a a legit weapons group for Matt Ryan to throw to. They just couldn't make it work. I think this is the best deal that they were probably offered. We heard rumors of possibly a first-round pick being offered. Obviously, that wasn't the case, so they ended up going with the Tennessee Titans offer. And so I'm excited. I hope Julio Jones can stay healthy because I really— Love watching him play. He's an elite, elite wide receiver. So we'll see if this pays off for the Tennessee Titans. All right, moving on then to the NCAA and football as they are looking at possibly expanding the playoffs from the four teams that we currently have to 12 teams as early as the 2023 season. So not this year. And 2023 is the earliest that this would start. It could be 2024 but the College Football Playoff Committee had sent their proposal to the commissioners, the chancellors, and the presidents of the schools and conferences that are that would ultimately ultimately decide if they sh- would move forward with this 12-team playoff. My initial thoughts on the t- when I heard that they were thinking about moving into a 12-team playoff was, wow, they are jumping from four to 12 like that. What happened to the six or what happened to the eight that was initially proposed, where you get the five power five conferences you get their conference champions those five are locks then you get three after that with possibly one group of five conference winner in that eight as well but here they jump to 12 and once i read a little bit more about it once i once i learned a little bit more about what their plan was for this 12 team playoff i started to like the idea of how this 12 team playoff would go so how it goes is the initial setup is there's four bye weeks. So the, so like the four-team playoff that we have now, say it was Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, and Oklahoma, those are usually around, those four are usually in that top four conversation. So say they are the top four come the time that we have this 12-team playoff. Those four would get a bye. Then you'd have five through 12 playing that first round of the playoffs. Then you get to the semifinals where they get where you obviously get the one through four seeds. Into there, and what those one through four and then what those semifinals is, is you get those large New Year's Six Bowls to host those semifinal games. So, like the Rose Bowl would be a part of the playoffs every year, unless it's one of the last four bowl games per usual. The Orange Bowl, the Citrus Bowl, those kind of bowls are now a part of this 12 team playoff. But what this also does, this 12 team playoff, it offers a chance for these group of five conferences. So, these conferences like The American Conference, the Conference USA, the Mid-American Conference, the Sun Belt Conference, and the Mountain West Conference. So like your Boise States, your UCFs, your – what's another one I'm trying to think of? Toledo, I guess, is another one that that you would consider as well. Those kinds of schools, they're not a part of the Power Fives, the ACC, the Big Ten, uh, the SEC, the Big 12, and the the Pac-12. Those are your Power 5 schools. These group of five conference teams, these five conferences, with this 12-team playoff, they have a better chance of getting one of their teams into this 12-team playoff. So when UCF goes 11-0 and doesn't make the playoffs, in this 12-team format, they would essentially get one of those 12 spots. They have a chance now to prove themselves against the Alabamas, the Ohio States. Now they might get trounced, but this way... It gives them a chance, and that's what I like about this twelve-team playoff. I don't know what their initial uh, plans are, like if it's the you get the Power Five conferences. Each one of their conference championships champions gets an automatic bid. Those that's five spots locked up. Maybe you get one group of five school that automatically gets in. That's six spots. But then you get. The loser of the big 10 championship you get probably the loser of the sec championship you get these other teams who might have had one poor game throughout the season so when alabama doesn't make the sec conference championship game they're 11 and 1 let's say but they don't make the sec ah, conference championship game excuse me people won't throw a fit when they still make the college football playoffs there was that year what was that 2016 maybe where they didn't make the sec championship game the team that beat them to get to the SEC championship game lost in the SEC championship game, which somehow got Alabama still into the playoffs, which they ended up winning the entire NCAA championship that year anyways. But this way, Alabama can lose a game, not make it to the the championship game in their conference, and they can still make the playoffs and people won't throw a fit. So this doesn't change things for the top dogs like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State. Those teams, it doesn't change much for. What it does is it gives a better chance for those group of five schools, the Boise States, the UCFs, the teams that are really good, not part of the Power Five conferences, the Coastal Carolinas, the teams that have poor, what we consider weak schedules, where Alabama, they're facing a top 25 team somehow like Auburn every other week. But this gives a more balanced opportunity for those lower teams. And the thing I like about it too is they're having those big bowl games like the Rose Bowl, like the Orange Bowl. If they're not a part of those final four, like the, like the playoffs that we have now, if they're not a part of that, they'll still be a part of this playoffs in the semifinals, in the quarterfinals possibly. This way, for the 12 teams that make the playoffs, the Rose Bowl usually, if it's not part of one of those final four games, it would end up being like the fourth best Big 10 team versus like the third best Pac-12 team. And that's not what you want in the Rose Bowl. So the Rose Bowl, the Orange Bowl, they'll still have really good matchups for those big, important bowls. Overall, I was skeptical of them jumping from a 14 playoff up to a 12. But when you read about it, you see how you'll get one of those group of five conferences. Like I said, the, the Sun Belt, the Conference USA Belt, the American Conference as well those teams will have a much much better chance of making the playoffs which is which is what people want if you have a team going 11 and 0 like UCF or 12 and 0 like UCF you want to see them get their chance against one of the big dogs like if if Alabama does have two losses and UCF doesn't get into the playoffs over a team like that you want to see them take their chances against one of those teams now they might <laughs> Alabama still might wipe the floor with them but hey it's something that we want to see and it's something that uh the fans the fans want to see as well just give them a shot you know they can't win the game if they don't play it so that's what I like about this playoff expansion is giving some of those smaller schools and giving and getting some diversity in these college football playoffs I mean my goodness we are sick of Alabama versus Clemson right now we want to see Alabama face somebody else first before they face Oklahoma and wipe the floor with or wipe the field with Oklahoma you know so you'll get Oklahoma you'll get you'll get Alabama, you'll get Clemson, you'll get Ohio State. Now you'll get teams like Wisconsin, you'll get teams like Tech uh, what is, uh Texas maybe if they're if they're there at the end, Florida, Auburn, some other some new teams into this playoff format where anyone can win a single game and these games will be quicker. It, they won't have 3 weeks off to prepare for that first bowl game in the in the college football playoffs. But the other thing, the the other side of this too is these kids will be playing 14, 15, 16 games in a season where it used to be 12 or 13. So it's, it's a few more games likely added on if a team was in the first playoff game and they made it all the way to the championship game. But it's something that they had to take into consideration. But I kind of like it how it gives more teams an opportunity to get into this college football playoffs. So we'll see how it works out. Hopefully it comes sooner rather than later in 2023. That's that's I believe the earliest that it could come. So we've got at least two more years of the college of the four team college football playoffs that we have now and we'll see if it gets expanded by 2023. All right. On the other side of the NCAA, basketball, Wisconsin men's basketball just had the just had the world fall on top of them this past week as there was an article released in the Wisconsin State Journal uh, that there was a meeting between the seven seniors on the Wisconsin basketball team last season. There was a meeting between those seven seniors and head coach Greg Gard and a couple of assistants were there as well. It was secretly recorded. and But what this meeting was about is a lot of these seniors were expressing concerns and a lot of them were criticizing coach Greg Gard heavily in terms of their growth and how he feels about them as players, not just in terms of basketball, but outside of basketball as well. And there are some heavy quotes from some of the players in here. Walt McGrory, uh, Nate Reavers, among those as well. Demetric Trice, they all had something to say in terms of criticism towards Greg Gard. I mean, the Wisconsin State Journal reported on this yesterday. If you haven't read their article, go read it. It'll take you five, ten minutes max, but it's good to see on what some of the players are talking about. I won't go into all of the, the the details but here are some of the major quotes that were dropped so Nate Reavers, for example, this is what he said this was one of the, the things that was on the recording that was sent to the Wisconsin State Journal. he said, I personally don't think or feel like you care about our future aspirations. he said that to coach Greg Gard, Walt McGrory, another senior on the team I don't know if I'll ever talk to you again after this season. he transferred Nate Reavers, I believe is trying to go pro um a lot of the 6 of the 7 badgers they they all had opportunities to return only one of them is returning in Brad Davison I mean Walt McGrory also said I'd have a hard time referring Wisconsin to recruits I would not want he said I wouldn't want to send my son here to play basketball in this environment that that Wisconsin has right now some other players have said that you in recruiting you say this is like a home away from home but it doesn't feel like that so just <laughs> everything dropping on the heads of Wisconsin, if you read the article, Coach Greg Gard has said that it's not your guys's fault. He he listened. It said the whole time the recording, and then I believe a couple of players or somebody talked anonymously to the Wisconsin State Journal to clear some things up as well. But I mean, the Greg Gard released a statement the other day expressing how he feels and how he puts the 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 basketball players' concerns first, or how he wants to, and all that. Still, this was a huge bomb dropped on on the wisconsin basketball program i mean of course the the outrage from both the university and greg Gard and even some of the players is who secretly recorded this this conversation and then released it i mean you've got former players uh calling out those current players like sam decker saying how could you do that or how why does it matter Coaches, coach kind of thing but the players That the seniors that were talking about this were saying we can't even come talk to you about things outside of basketball. We just don't feel comfortable and stuff like that. So this was a big, this this was just big news dropped on Wisconsin men's basketball and Coach Greg Gard. I don't know. This is going to be something that hangs over their head this next season. I mean, Brad Davison is the one of only seven seniors to return this year. But I mean, now you've got guys coming, new guys coming in this year. Reading this article, how are they going to respond to that? Wisconsin still has to recruit. How are they going to be able to do that or sign guys that are in the transfer portal? This could have major repercussions for the Wisconsin men's basketball team, and this is going to be really difficult for them to navigate. And this started, I believe, two years ago before the pandemic. I mean, they were having problems. They were able to fix them somehow. Something went right. They had a conversation. They went on that huge run. If you remember, they won the Big Ten tournament they were going they were the hottest team going into the NCAA tournament and then the pandemic happened and shut it down. But then some of those problems came back. And of course, every team's gonna have struggles during the pandemic in Wisconsin wasn't immune to them. But this was but the the thing that was most concerning about this article that you saw is the things that weren't related to basketball. So guys pointing fingers at each other, coaches blaming players, yada yada yada, things not working on the court, losing obviously people are going to get frustrated right that happens that stuff's on the court but these these quotes of these players concerns with nothing to do regarding basketball is what was most concerning to see with wisconsin if it was all basketball related that can be fixed winning can solve a lot of those problems right losing is when a lot of this starts to come out winning covers it up winning covers up a lot of that stuff but this stuff of I personally don't feel like you care about our future aspirations. I don't know if I'll ever talk to you again after this. I wouldn't have my son come here. Um, stuff like that. I don't know if I would recommend recruits to come here. It doesn't feel like home away from home when you say that we're a family kind of deal. That kind of stuff is really hard to not to not over. What's the word I'm trying to think of here? To not over exaggerate. That's that's a big deal. Like, that, that cannot be overstated, uh, how big of a deal that that can... Coming from seniors that have been at Wisconsin for four or five years, some of these guys have been there. Aleem Ford, Nate Reavers, Brad Davison seems to be going into, like, his sixth or seventh season at Wisconsin now. But, I mean, when those guys say stuff that's off the court like that, that's a really big deal, and it can't be overstated. How Wisconsin responds to it this regular season, we'll see. But I think it's going to be hanging over their head, when, when you listen to a Wisconsin basketball game, it's going to be the first thing mentioned on top of every broadcast for at least the first 10 games. This article was released, Greg Gard, how does he do this with the players? It's going to be asked after each game, after every loss. It's going to be mentioned. It's just going to be hanging around. So Wisconsin will have to see how they recover from this and how they go about next season with this hanging over their heads. We'll see. It'll be interesting, but this was... A huge news, just the the sky falling on top of Wisconsin here with this coming out in the past two days. All right. Now we are at my final thought today on this episode of the Final Final Podcast. The MLB is banning sticky substances for pitchers for the rest of this season. It went into effect two days ago on June 21st. So what this is, is pitchers that are using products like sunscreen on their arms to make their hands a little grippier, get a better grip on the baseball, pine tar, there's this thing called spider tack, and then there's this like pelican grip dip, this stuff that pitchers use, they, they could put it in their glove, they can put it on the bottom of their hat, they could put it on their arm. They rub a little bit on their throwing hand, and then it gives them better grip, it allows them to throw the ball with more revolutions, which we'll talk about in a second but here's the here's here's the consequences of banning this sticky substance for pitchers umpires can check pitchers in between innings so maybe after the first inning they can ask the pitcher hey come over here show us your glove show us your hat and show us your belt so like pitchers are literally like taking their pants off on the field they can check this stuff umpires can check it between batters so after they strike out a batter there's two outs maybe they can they can check the pitcher then or when they exit the game. So if the pitcher's done after five innings, they can ask the pitcher to show them glove, hat, and belt. If a pitcher is caught with one of these substances, like I said, some use sunscreen on their arm, some use the pine tar and stuff like that. It's an automatic 10-day suspension. I mean, in two days, we have pitchers have already been making a huge fuss about it, and understandably, their displeasure with it. I mean, you saw Max Scherzer, was it yesterday? when he had uh, the opposing team's manager, Joe Girardi, he asked for them three times to check Max Scherzer's uh, hat, belt, and glove. And three times, he cleared it every time. That's something to me that seems egregious. When you, you passed once, okay, that's great. You passed twice, no need to check again. He's not going to put something on later in the game would be my guess if you're going to continue to check him. If you see something suspicious, obviously, then you'll, you'll check him again. But if nothing's changed, there's no need to check him after that. You saw Max Scherzer, Scherzer excuse me, then I believe Sergio Ramos of the Oakland A's. But I mean, it's 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 crazy what the pitchers pitchers have been using this kind of stuff for years. As their argument for it is, it's safer for the batters. When we get this kind of control with the ball, you'll see less batters hit. You'll, and which is of course, batters don't like getting hit. You'll see less balls to the head and helmet which of course the MLB doesn't want to see any of that so it's kind of been let go but now recently some of this stuff that they've been using some of this sticky stuff the 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 spider tack I guess the pelican grip dip and the pine tar that stuff's been banned but pitchers have found ways I guess some have found ways to use it what it does is it's it's inducing a lot of strikeouts ball, I mean what it what the effect of this grip stuff does is the revolutions on the baseball creates an illusion of the ball rising when it in fact is not. It's just the illusion of how many revolutions the ball is throwing. So these fastballs look uh, a lot like sliders or something like that. And what it does, of course, if the batting averages are down, the home runs may be down, hard hit balls may be down. And, of course, baseball doesn't want that because fans want to see home runs, fans want to see runs scored, fans want to see big hits, and stuff like that. Obviously, pitchers have been arguing against it. You've got pitchers like Tyler Glass now who said he's been using this stuff, he had to stop, and all of a sudden he's got injured, he's got an injury, and in I think his throwing elbow because of the way he's had to try and regrip the baseball. These baseballs aren't grip-friendly, I believe, for pitchers without some of this either sunscreen or some of these legal sticky substances. Batters have usually uh, let it go, they're they're fine with it as long as they stay safe, but now with their numbers dropping, obviously they're no longer a fan of it, so... With the result of the MLB banning this stuff, you'll probably see less strikeouts, more hard-hit balls by these players, i.e. more home runs, which is what the MLB wants. And you'll probably see some dominant pitchers that were using this stuff struggle from time to time. I don't know which dominant—I mean, Garrett Cole has kind of admitted, by not admitting that he uses some of this stuff, one of the best pitchers in baseball. You might—will he struggle from time to time without using this? Will we see some of these big-time players, some of these big-time pitchers get suspended for 10-plus games? If they get caught twice, I believe there are even more repercussions if that happens. But the thing that's really inter- that, that's kind of out of bounds, in my opinion, from the MLB here is they're doing this midseason. What they've said is the MLB is trying to come up with a new way, a new substance that's legal, that doesn't affect it too much, but it helps pitchers. They're trying to come up with a new sticky substance that can replace just, like, mud and water, you know, to get a little grip on these. They're they're hoping in the next couple of years that they'll come out with a new sticky substance. But the problem is they don't have it ready. And so pitchers are like, how can you ban this midseason when we're – some that are using the sunscreen, which has been a legal way of putting a little grip on on the pitchers to help them with the control – now midseason, these guys have to adjust, which a lot of, lot of players and in some batters, most batters are happy with the fact that they're they're getting rid of these kind of substances, but the fact that you're doing it midseason, this is something that should have been saved for the offseason. It's really, it's a bad look. These pitchers are making the MLB look like fools right now, but the way that they're kind of exaggerating the fact that they have to show the umpires. And the other thing that the MLB is doing, they're they're kind of wiping their hands clean of, of when some of these guys get suspended. They're putting all that power into the umpires, and the umpires are already under tremendous stress with the new strike and ball zone because of the automated strike zone that you see on your TV, right? Obviously, the umpire doesn't see that, but we get to see that. So if there's a strike and he calls it a ball or vice versa, there's already a ton of heat coming at the umpires, and now they get this on their plates as well doesn't seem really fair and the MLB is trying to wipe their hands clean of it seems like something that should have been left for the offseason especially since they don't have a new substance for pitchers to use that they said was coming a new substance to use to keep control of the balls while still keeping it fair for the batters as well hopefully too what we don't see is a rise in batters hit by balls you know that's not that's not something you want to see if it is something that we see a rise in a big rise in especially will we see the mlb revert back to letting them use some certain substances now the spider tack the pine tar and the pelican grip dip (laughs) i love that name but those were never legal for pitchers to use some still must have found out ways to use it but maybe they'll they'll be able to use the sunscreen or something like that. But this is something that is interesting. It's something to watch definitely. The rest of the major league baseball season, you'll probably see home run numbers go up though. So if you're MLB, will definitely be a fan of that happening. Hopefully we don't see batters get hit by more balls though. We'll see definitely something to keep an eye on. All right, final final thought then today on this episode of the final final podcast, Carl Nassib, defensive end for the Las Vegas Raiders almost at Oakland there. He becomes the first active NFL player to come out as gay. This was amazing to see. He posted this on his Instagram. Nothing flashy in terms of like uh, I don't know, like a news conference or, or anything like that. He just did it on his own terms and I, and I thought that Carl Nassib handled handled this in such a such a big moment this was of course for the NFL and an all major league sports as well is becoming the first active major league sports player i believe to come out as gay in terms of NFL NBA MLB but the way that he handled such a big moment like this perfectly i mean there's no wrong way to do this but especially by saying hopefully one day these types of public announcements won't be necessary for athletes celebrities public figures he's absolutely right obviously this is a big deal for the NFL in the way that it is but a lot of people reacting to it as as not a big deal is 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 good in a way because it means that we're becoming more comfortable. This isn't something that should concern people, right? And I think that's what Carl Nassib meant by hopefully one day these types of public announcements won't be necessary. But the way that he went about it, this is this is still a huge moment because of the platform that he has. He also went out and donated to was it the Trevor Project, which I believe is is one of the um, LGBTQ Foundations that helps young LGBTQ people in, in this type of thing. So this was really great for Carl for Nassib to do. It was really great to see. Even better is the reaction from players across the league, across other major sports leagues. President Joe Biden reaching out and, and mentioning something as well has been nothing short of extraordinary support for Carl Nassib as well. I mean, his own teammates, coming out and saying, "Hell yeah, I got your back. This is going to be a great special season." Was really cool to see for Carl Nassib um coming out as the first active NFL player coming out as gay. It was really cool. I mean, he just he went on his Instagram, said it. He said, "Wasn't nothing, I mean, if you know me, I'm not a big uh not looking for attention," is what he said. And so just coming out like that and saying it was really cool to see and how he did it, and it's going to it's going to change a lot of lives, believe it or not, seeing a big public figure i believe his jersey was the number one selling jersey in the uh in the u.s for the next for the past three days two three days which is really cool so really really cool how that all came about and how he went about doing that and all the reaction that we saw too was uh was cool to see all right that's all i have for you on this episode of the final final podcast thanks for tuning in next episode we'll see where we're at with the conference finals We'll look into the NFL, what's coming up with training camps. We'll see if the Aaron Rodgers story has anything different. Nothing really new at this point, of course, because he's still not with Green Bay. Actually getting ready for that golf tournament that I mentioned before of him and Bryson DeChambeau versus Tom Brady and Phil Mickelson. But we'll discuss the NFL as well, and we'll see where we're at in the NHL playoffs. Stanley Cup coming up soon, so we'll get to all of that in next week's podcast episode. All right, thanks for tuning in this week. Stay safe out there. And that is the final final.